Dorothy Cougar Archive Project is a special Writing on the Wall commission from National Museums Liverpool. In the last episode, we explored the Black British uprisings of the 1980s, Dorothy's role on the Broadwater Farm Inquiry Panel, as well as her time as Race Relations Advisor for Haringey Council in London. In the early 1990s, Dorothy returned to her hometown of Liverpool for the last time, to a home that she'd purchased in the 1970s. Following the uprisings of 1981, the downward spiral of Liverpool 8 intensified. In the aftermath, then-Conservative Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher responded to the disturbances by appointing MP Michael Heseltine as Minister of Merseyside, who, armed with government funding, was set the task of revitalising Liverpool's failing economy. Yet these millions would mostly be ploughed into the city centre and Docklands as Liverpool 8 was left to rot. Liverpool's black community was once again under threat when in the early 1990s, the City Council earmarked the area around Granby Street, the main high street and heart of Liverpool 8, for demolition. And Dorothy, armed with her knowledge and skills, her decades of professional experience and determination, was ready to fight one of her last fights for the area she grew up in and where her political activism began. I'm Project Manager Jenea Pickett, and this is the final episode of Writing on the Walls, Dorothy Kuya podcast. Throughout the making of this podcast and throughout the project, we've attempted to gain as full a picture as possible of Dorothy Kuya's life, work and character from those that knew her. We have spoken to family, community members, former colleagues, a few communists, anti-racist activists, artists, councillors, one MP, and even a priest. Every one of them spoke of her positive influence on their lives as a teacher, setting them up in some campaign, in some line of work, on some educational path. Dorothy's nephew, Paul, and his wife, Tammy, inherited Dorothy's vast collection on her passing in 2013 and should be praised for recognising the significance of the archive as a testament to Black British history. I spoke to Paul about Auntie Dot, as he still affectionately calls her, and I wondered in particular when he first became aware of her activism. The first time I was aware was um, she had the um, role of race relations officer, uh, first black female in Liverpool. The place, I think it was number 69, Mount Pleasant. Mm-hmm. And we were we were very young, might have been around about four or five or something like that. And we'd go there. And we, we, as kids, we were just like playing outside or whatever. And I remember seeing, you know, some of the badges and stickers up and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. fight against racism. And it was just like black and white, you know, so it kind of like stood out. Um, and then Auntie Dot, she would, she'd say to us, she'd say, well, do you know what racism is? And, you know, you don't know what racism is. Mm-hmm. You only know that somebody's called you a name 
or like sort of like you, you, you get a certain vibe about certain people, you know, either the way they're looking at you, the way they talk and, and stuff like that. So you really don't know. Um, but anyway, this uh, race relations office on Mount Pleasant, I was watching the TV one day and it was a bit of the news and Auntie Dot come up on the news and we were like, that is our auntie. This Auntie Dot on the telly or whatever, and she was talking about racism and stuff like that. And it what it made me ask the odd questions. And as I got a little bit older and a bit more like sort of like knowledgeable, you know, I would I'd ask, I'd say, look, I'd say, Auntie Dot, I'd say, well, you know, how come you started the uh, race relations? You know, how come you were the first black? And she said, oh yeah. And then I read it in the paper, um, and then she said, what Spain? That aren't even fair there. I think it was somebody like, um, oh, what's his name? The milit- Remember the militant leader of Liverpool? Yeah, um, Derek Hatton. Derek Hatton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She tore, she tore strips off him. <laughs> tore strips off, literally. Um, he said, oh, I, I can't understand why we've got this role. There's no racism in Liverpool. So Auntie Dot took him to task and told him one time, you know what I mean, about like how it is, what this is, what that is. And then um, Auntie Dot ended up with this big job in London because mm. um, she could see no further way forward. All the other jobs, bigger position than where Auntie Dot was at the time, they were given to people who just didn't have a clue, who were mm. just there. It's a friend of a friend, so we are, is a job. You go and do that sort of thing or whatever. So Auntie Dot went higher than that again. You mm-hmm. know, she was a race relations commissioner for Harringay County Council in London. Do you know what I mean? And she'd always prescribed that, like, she'd come back to Liverpool because this was her home. This mm-hmm. is where she was born. She loved Liverpool. She loved the people in it as well, you know, when uh, she taught... A lot of people, she had her own agenda for um, fighting racism. She started off, of course, I think it was through a business she started called Affamata, mm-hmm. and uh, she set that up, and it was going. You know, she'd teach the police, she'd teach the emergency services, because when you think about racism, it happens in every, you know, sector. It's yeah. not just like going for a job or mm-hmm. going to chippy. You know, it's everywhere, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So you kept out. So she devised this course and uh, it went well. And then mm. uh, something happened and then she'd come away from that anyway. And she was back in Liverpool. She was nearly retired anyway. Mm. So she'd come back to Liverpool where we thought, oh, she's going to take a break now. And she didn't. You know, <laughs> she, <laughs> she didn't. She she hey, with the Liverpool Museums set mm. up the anti, uh, sorry, the uh, slavery remembrance do itself. And she'd done uh, walks everywhere. She was always, she always wanted people to have self-worth, to have work, to be able to create something for themselves, mm. you know. And she was all, she employed everybody. I'd go round to my auntie some days and she'd have like uh, maybe somebody who lived in her own street, you know, doing a garden somebody else cleaning the windows and stuff like that. She was enterprising, mm. do you know what I mean? And she showed people, well, yeah, you can go out and do that. And if yeah. nobody's employing you, you can do it yourself. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Why don't you set yeah. up your own business? 
you know, mm. she, she she was she was uh, she was clever, yeah, very very clever, you know. Yeah. But, um, and yeah. she didn't she didn't take a step back. She never ever took a step back. I've never seen my auntie back down from anybody. Well, that's it. I think yeah. me and Vicky used to joke like mm-hmm. Vicky was like putting together this timeline, you know, mm-hmm. of everything she'd been involved with as she's like sorting through the archive. Yeah. And we were both saying there's no there's no gap. You know, there's, there's no, no like gap year where she's gone to chill out, yeah. you know, for six months or whatever. It, there's no. none of that. Yeah. Right yeah. up until, you know, as you say, she passed away. Every it was day. Yeah. yeah. Every yeah. day was full. Mm. And that's what Auntie Dot taught. That's why I work so hard, mm. you know, because of Auntie Dot. Although Liverpool's black community lacked materially, culturally, it remained vibrant. The Charles Wotton Adult Education Centre was established in 1974 to address the lack of black students, particularly Liverpool-born black students, in further and higher education. The Charlie, as it was known locally, serviced a generation of local black youth, becoming legend. One of its former students turned teachers is now Professor Mark Christian, of Lehman College, City University of New York. I spoke with him about the significance of the centre and his interactions with Dorothy Kuya. But Dorothy, she straddles like 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s to the 2000s. So within her life is her own life and the connections to black, black liberation that's how I got to know her. Oh, she was also doing a, that's another thing. She was working with Eric Lynch. I think there was a little bit of testiness between them, but but in a nice way, I, I, you know, it wasn't heavy. But they were both doing the slavery history trail. So she, I knew Dorothy that through that as well. And there was a guy at the International Slavery M- Museum. His name was Gary, Gary something in the early 90s. So there was that connection too. So Dorothy was always uh, connected to Pan-Africanism and the Liverpool Black experience. So when I moved around, I was a student at the Charles Wooten in um, 1981, 1980 to 1981. And while I was there as a student, the, the urban uprising took place. So I'm doing algebra upstairs looking out the window and I can see a burnt car you see can you imagine my consciousness and I was getting taught by a guy called um, Ron Babatundi Phillips who were pan-Africanists from Manchester so I'm a young kid I'm 19 and I'm being educated by life experience you know can you imagine doing algebra looking out the window and there's riots it was crazy time but that was a beautiful class because we did a we did a some poetry called Speaking for Ourselves, a little pamphlet. And it was all poetry from so-called illiterate students. We were not illiterate, we were failed by the education system. Some very smart people came through that class alone. And I I was following my sister, Rita, God rest her soul. She passed away 2021. But I went to, uh, in, in the community, I'm not sure you know this, but it's Dorothy's 
struggle for education sets up the adult education learning, which grew into the Charles Wooten. And so there's all that going on. And I'm a student coming in in 1980. So I'm benefiting from the struggles of Dorothy and her generation, you see. And um, my, my sisters were always going on courses. And I would say, what are you doing, Rita? She said, oh, I'm on the Charles Wooten. You should try it. That was the word of mouth that we got in the community. So that's how I got on the Charles Wooten. And I didn't have aspirations to be a professor. That, that wasn't in my uh, mentality. But I got very much fired up by the notion of black history. And so, and then living through, actually living through the 1981 uprisings had a profound impact on me. And then I got the Liverpool 8 Defence Committee. We're in the basement of the Charlie and I'm upstairs studying, you see? So, so you can't get away. I couldn't get away from black Liverpool history being, being made and my own education and my education went towards black history. Therefore, I go towards Dorothy, Eric Lynch, and those kind of individuals. Adam Hussein, Stephen Smith, Dave Smith, Carl Smith. You know, all these, uh, Dave Clay. I played football with Dave Clay for 10 years. He was in one of my, the groups with my elder brothers, vocal groups. So all of that is is impinging on my life. And I'm just a kid. I was very quiet as a young kid, you know. I was very shy in the community. I, I'm I'm not a loud person, believe it or not. I, I'm a, one of the quiet dudes. But I got fire. I got fire in me through Dorothy's, through Eric Lynch's, the Dave Clay's, Adam Hussein. Um, I was fortunate to have the bookstore, Source Books, in Myrtle Parade. So I was going to um, school and then I went to the access to higher education. So I was in Liverpool 8 being educated by the Liverpool Black Experience. And all of that is part of Dorothy, Dorothy's legacy. Because anything we achieved in Liverpool, somewhere behind was Dorothy at a meeting signing off on it. But you don't, she didn't get the kudos, you see. But she was there, always there at a meeting. <laughs> and um, she embarrasses most of us, Martin, because she was so, so strong in going to those meetings. I'm not a very meetingish person, you know. So Dorothy is so important. And the other person I would put alongside her on the male side is Eric Lynch. The total cost of the 1981 uprisings was estimated at around £11 million. Scores of buildings were destroyed. There were almost 500 arrests, 700 police officers injured, and over 200 police vehicles damaged. Rather than addressing the roots of rioting, such as police harassment and racial discrimination in education, housing and employment, the Conservative government instead spent close to £20 million, around £100 million a day, on the redevelopment of the Albert Dock and the International Garden Festival. Neither would be close to or accessed by the black community. The betrayal of the uprisings in the national media ensured that Liverpool 8's reputation 
as a no-go area was solidified. A detrimental cycle of business closures, emptying houses, and a lack of maintenance from housing associations quickened its dereliction as the City Council marked the Granby Triangle for demolition in what many in the area, including Dorothy, described as ethnic cleansing. Here's archivist Vicky Karen talking about Dorothy's material from the Granby Residents Association. There are only two boxes of material on the Granby Residence. Um, the material starts from 1994, although I think it might have been set up a year earlier. And it looks at the demolition plans that were mooted for the Granby Street area. So there's a constitution, there are some maps, minutes, correspondence with the city council and local councillors. Also notices of meetings, notices keeping local residents informed and reports on housing and housing policy. Uh, One of my favourite things in there is a whole series of local publications called The Jangler. Mm -hmm. And this is, if for people who don't know, it's uh, like a community magazine, a community newspaper, keeping people informed of what's happening in the local area, But the Jangler really did report on how the GRA were progressing with the fight back against the the demolition and how this would have impacted on the community at the time. Hazel Tilly is an activist, feminist and close friend of Dorothy. I visited her in her now beautifully renovated home in Liverpool 8 and could have listened to her for hours. Here she is talking about when she first met Dorothy and the formation of the Granby Residents Association. I first met Dorothy Couillard, who lived in Jermyn Street, when the council had sent out um, their plans for compulsory purchase and demolition of the area. And the Granby Residents Association was formed by Paul and Anna Minter, and Dorothy very soon joined them. I went to one of the meetings and she recruited me. Mm-hmm. So that would be 32 years ago, maybe. And that was the first time. And that was the first yeah. I'd seen her around, but she'd been living in London. Mm-hmm. And I'd been, um, you know, living in Liverpool, basically. But I wasn't always in this house. So I didn't meet her until I moved into Kent Street, which again was about 33 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, and I was still toing and froing between Liverpool and London and I met her when the when our houses were under threat. Mm. I think the greatest pity is that Dorothy didn't live to see uh, the the uh, regeneration of the area but she did die knowing that her house wasn't going to be knocked down mm. because by then the GRA had it didn't have any residents left so and it was no longer fit for purpose. Um the Granby Residents Association offered up a lot of ideas to the council, introduced pound housing to them via Benwell, because um, Liverpool City Council like to say that they were the first who thought of the pound housing, far from it, 20 years early in, in Benwell in Newcastle. Mm. I'd done started a pound housing scheme and Dorothy arranged for us to go to Benwell to have a look at it and we invited mm. councillors with us. So we know that they knew because they, we suggested that they look at that for this area because it wasn't emptied out as much as it came to be later. Um, and Dorothy was, she was powerful. Um, I 
when Angus came along to join us, um, she stepped down from being chair of the GRA because she thought it was better to have him as a figurehead and the chair. But Dorothy absolutely continued to do all the work. She could also bring out of people more than they thought they could do. The Angus that Hazel refers to, the chair of the Granby Residents Association, is Chief Angus Chokomega, a long-standing social campaigner, the current CEO of Crawford House Community Partnership, and honorary patron of the Ebo Community Association. Here he is talking about when he first met Dorothy as a young student in 1973. I met her when I was a young student here in Liverpool. At the time, she was the she was the officer at Merseyside Rochelle. I think at that time it was called Relations Council, um, and then of course later on they changed it to Rochelle Equality Council. Uh, and, and she was the first uh, officer then. She noticed that there were no Africans on the on the committee. And in fact, there weren't really many local people on the committee at that time. Uh, I, I, there were just people like Ludwig Hesse and um, Margaret Sami, John Hamilton, uh, Father Austin Smith, Rashid Mofti, Gideon Benitovin. So these were actually these were the people who were there at the time, and 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 then for, I don't know how I think we met by accident, and she asked where I where I came from. I said I was I came from Nigeria, and from and I was a student, an engineering student at the time. She introduced me to you know this relations for this Russian quality council this, uh, in Mount Pleasant. So I attended the meeting, and then obviously I was I was I was impressed with what she was doing, and of course I've had I've had experience of you know racial discrimination. It was something that I accepted really, and that's the difference between me and those who were born here, um, because my intention really wasn't to stay in Liverpool when I came here. I came here as a student. I was sent. I was sent by my parents, and the idea was finishing. When I finished, I would come back to Nigeria. Unfortunately, there was the Biafra-Nigerian War, and that and that kept most of us back here. Um, so when I um, when I met Dorothy, you know, she was really very inspiring. She, you know, she she welcomed me and. Um, and then it was then I started having an insight into race relations issues and some of the issues that I came across that I, I brushed aside and I, I started taking notice of them. Then obviously realized that it, there weren't things I should accept really. So it was really important for me. Uh, because that really broadened my out- outlook about uh, discrimination. I thought, obviously, because I was black and I didn't really have equal rights as the white people. I was in their country. So that's how I took it. <laughs> but it was, um, you know, Dorothy's uh, 
in my meeting with her, and that obviously opened my eyes and, and, and inspired me into getting more involved in that. And yeah. Not accepting that this, um, it is something that, you know, um, uh, that I, I, I deserve because I was a black person. What Angus is saying here is that before his arrival in Liverpool and meeting the acquaintance of individuals like Dorothy Kuya, he'd been a victim of what is now commonly understood as a colonial mindset. The theory popularised most notably by Afro-Caribbean psychologist and philosopher Franz Fanon. This internalised inferiority was a direct result of British colonialism. Before moving to Britain, Angus had had no cause to question white superiority. However, following his awakening in the early 1970s, he never looked back. By the early 1990s, Dorothy and Angus were longtime friends. And for her part, Dorothy turned 60 the same year as the establishment of the Granby Residents Association in 1993. One of the GRA's first meetings, filmed by another pioneering Black Liverpool woman, Sandy Hughes, shout out to Sandy, is available to watch on YouTube. In this gathering, Dorothy takes the floor for around 12 minutes, laying out her credentials and knowledge of social housing, and her belief that the planned Granby demolition was in part due to a shift in power in housing from city council to housing associations and the desire of their chief executives to control valuable property close to a regenerating city centre. The video is well worth watching to witness this remarkable woman in action. She's articulate, she's prepared, she absolutely knows her stuff and will not be interrupted. In the last episode, Jeremy Corbyn described Dorothy as a force of nature, and the film of the GRA meeting demonstrates this beyond argument. Here's Hazel again, talking about Dorothy's reputation by the 1990s, as well as their wonderful friendship. She was a powerful woman, and that power is what made her get things done. That power was what, which, what, what led her through. It made her a leader. She was a mover and a shaker. She did incredible things over her life, which is why we're recognising her. And the things that made her great were the things that made her awful. Yeah. And if you loved her for her greatness, then best you love her for the awful things too. And actually I did. Because mm. I, was, I was in my early 30s when I met her. And as grown up as you think you are and the fact that I was buying a house and all the rest of it, I might be an adult, but I wasn't mature and I didn't know what Dorothy knew. Dorothy was 23 years older than me. So she was old enough to be my mum. And she wasn't my mum, she was my friend. But she was also a helper and a she provided for me. When I went through a very bad time and I lost my job, Dorothy used to find work for me and pay me for doing it. So she would pay me to hang a mirror. She would pay me to clean her cupboards. And she would find things for me to do and pay me. And she introduced me to volunteer roles where I would get some money. 
So she, I used to drive the minibus for Liverpool Black Sisters and it was a volunteer role, but you got expenses for doing it. Mm. And she provided me with references and she did me a huge amount of good. And as much as uh, we weren't terribly close when she died mainly because my husband was so ill and I was spending more and more time in London. So there was a separation. And you, sometimes you don't recognise when you're in trouble just how much you do depend on somebody. And it's only afterwards that you think, she kept me going. Mm. She kept me going. And I think I won't be the first person who will say, Dorothy Couillard get, kept me going through a hard time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I'm sure I'm not the only one who yeah, said it. Definitely. I'm sure I'm not the only one who said she was difficult. But I'm sure I'm not the only one who said how generous she was. Hazel's description of Dorothy chimes with many others that we've heard. The phrase didn't suffer fools gladly came up on several occasions. Dorothy, as a working class black woman born in 1930s Liverpool, with aspirations above her station, would have no doubt needed to have learned toughness. At a time when the societal norm for women was to be wed and domesticated, as soon as you came of marriageable age. Dorothy chose to remain single, or rather, married to her cause. She was incredibly intelligent and never afraid to express it. Unlike many of her generation, she mingled easily with Pan-African academics and political activists, and with the white middle class through her connections with the Communist Party labour and anti-colonial movements. She spoke with a neutral British accent, even though she was forever proud of her Liverpool heritage. As childhood friend Hazel Ampar explained it, she was more intelligent than all of us, and we knew it. Dorothy was unusual. Her accent, her intelligence, and no doubt colorism played a hand in her ability to cross social boundaries and access elite spaces. But that's a whole other study. I asked Dorothy's nephew, Paul, where he thought her intelligence and determination came from. I would say it's come from my nan and partially her own life experiences you know, seeing things that happened, uh, you know, along the way. Um, Auntie Dot, when she was uh, a little girl, right through until uh, when she passed, uh, she'd always suffered, you know, with her bronchial, you know, problems. So when she was a little girl, uh, she had to have, like, oxygen, you know, brought to the house and stuff like that. So she missed out on a lot of school. I mean, Nan would always provide her and go to the libraries for it and bring books back, you know, so she could continue her uh, uh, education. And then also, you know, mother and daughter talking to each other. And I remember Auntie Dot saying to me, my nan would say that, like, a lot of people from, you know, the UK, all across Europe, have got a lot to answer for, for how they've underdeveloped certain parts of the world and how they've treated people as well. So I think there's birth there, you know, for uh, the young girl, Auntie Dot, you know, to put her thoughts. She's had a lot of time by herself being ill. Mm. 
to really think, well, yeah, I've got to fight this as well. And this is what's going to happen to me. This is what's going to happen to me counterparts. You know, uh, she, she had to sort something out herself. So that was her first direction on it. And yeah. then uh, she's taken the reins herself mm. and um, developed into, you know, becoming a very learned person, you know, on subjects of uh, sex and race. She's understood from a very young age, you know, so it's given that scope to be able to go in that direction rather than just being indoctrinated and led by an education system that would have just turned her out to be a homekeeper, you know, in its day, because that's what girls had to do. They had to do this course, and it's like how to be a good house person or whatever. But yeah. Auntie Dot wasn't like that. <laughs> Auntie Dot was like, well, yeah, men should do that too. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> so right. Yeah, 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 that's mm-hmm. it. One aspect of Dorothy that we found endlessly fascinating throughout this project is her decades-long association with the Communist Party. Many people who we spoke to never realised the extent to which the party had played a central role in Dorothy's life and career. And those who did know some of it tended to believe that come the 1960s and 70s, Dorothy began to reject communism in favour of Pan-Africanism. In fact, the archive shows as Vicky has explained in earlier episodes, that Dorothy was an important member of the CPGB right up until the late 1980s. From age 13, she'd gotten her education, her connections, her work, all through party comrades. Dorothy's communism, much like her Pan-Africanism, was part of her identity. For better or worse, she'd remained loyal but at the same time was never afraid to criticise the party, especially in terms of sexism and racism. What's been most interesting is the controversy that discussing this communism still holds in 2023. Here's Mark Christian with his take. I have a problem with Karl Marx and all of that stuff because Karl Marx himself didn't give a hoot about black people. Karl Marx, for me, was a person who broke down capitalism as a system. But when it came to black people of his generation, he didn't care about black people. He was more or less the same age as Frederick Douglass. I'm doing a biography of Frederick Douglass currently. They're the same age, born three months apart, Karl Marx and uh, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, born into enslavement, had to escape it. They met each other in Europe, you know, but Karl Marx never uh, embraced abolitionism, you know. Mm. So I, I, I have a problem with Karl Marx himself and the way black people kind of ran to him, you know, ran to his theories. He is good in breaking down the system of capitalism, which is very inequitable unequal, you know, I understand all of that, false consciousness, alienation, structure of society, classes, great. But when it comes to him liberating black people, he was only interested in liberating the white working class, you see. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, that's my problem. You know, if if, I, if Dorothy was here, I'd be talking like that and yeah. listening to what she has to say to that. 
Dorothy's friend Hazel, as you will hear, is more comfortable with Dorothy's communism and gives us some indication of how she was affected by the shifting ideologies of the 1980s and 90s, as well as the evolution of the Granby Residents Association into a community land trust. There was a few things that I thought crushed Dorothy. And as we age, we become more, less and less important and more and more invisible. And there is absolutely no doubt about that. I think it particularly applies to women. And, I mean, I'm 68. I feel my world shrinking, but I don't mind. Mm. And It's actually not an issue for me, but I think it was an issue for Dorothy. And also um, the fall of the communists, the fall of Russia, really, what she saw. And when the truth came out about Stalin, and she was just devastated by it because she built her life on her communist beliefs and her socialism. And socialism and communism doesn't change, but Russia had changed and it shattered her lot of her dreams. Mm. And I think that and the fact of losing power and the dissolution of... The, she wasn't happy when I said in a public meeting... Um, when we were discussing starting as a CLT, Dorothy was against starting as a community land trust, despite the fact that 10 years earlier she'd introduced us as a topic and we didn't know how we could do it. And she'd got a book about the island that was bought and she'd shared it with us. And she'd got this little film that she shared with us to, you know, encourage us to look at it and see the power that we'd have if we owned it ourselves. But none of us could work out how to get it. And we tried to work with the council for a while to get it. And she just said, we're wasting our time. And so we let that drop. And when it was resurrected and it was the right time because the housing market renewal initiative had ended, the council left us alone because they'd run out of reasons to knock us down. And the money had run out as a reason for them to knock us down. And we had, you know, as a resident association shrunk and shrunk as people were emptied out of the area. And of course, the new people that came in didn't necessarily want to join an association that was anti-demolition when they'd quite often been moved into renovated or new homes. Mm. Right. Mm. They didn't understand why the streets were going to be knocked down, but the CLT actually did a lot around that as well. The, the Granby Resident Association did a lot to stop. It, everything it did was about stopping demolition and giving new ideas to the council. Mm. And everything it did was totally ignored by the council. And we came up with great ideas and we had wonderful people who... You know, we had a professor from Chester who did all sorts of logistic things for us and explained. To, and Dorothy came with a huge stock of knowledge about how to use stats, how to put stuff together. You see, Dorothy didn't want the Community Land Trust because she, I think that it was the start of her losing some power. And you see, some people didn't like her and couldn't deal with her. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, the... Some of those people did join and, and were very formative in the Community Land Trust. I wish Dorothy had joined us, but she didn't want to. And she, she I think to me, it was like another edge off any, you know, she was losing. She was in her 80s, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And I think, yeah, she was losing her her power. Yeah, no, it's just, yeah, that just stuck with me because, you know, obviously I've been... Yeah really picking over yeah. not just the life but then going and reading books about yeah. the context if you know what I mean well, to yeah. get a full like as full a picture as yeah. I can yeah. so it's it, yeah it's like 
hearing about that and thinking, oh God, you know, you can sort of see it all. And I could understand that completely. Like, oh yeah, that would be something that happened if, as you say, she was gorgeous. You know, she traveled the world. She did whatever she wanted. Yeah. You know, she was single. And in that, in that way, she was And free, it wasn't because know. she hadn't been offered. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, imagine. Dorothy had lots of propositions and lots of proposals and I've no doubt about that. And she never accepted any of them. And she laughed when I told her the story of my first proposal and she just thought it was absolutely hysterical and she she understood it. She absolutely understood it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And she understood why I said what I said. I was only young when I was first proposed to. It was in a pub. It was by somebody going out with three months and I think I must have been 19, clearly of marriageable age. And uh, and he said, will you marry me? And my answer was, why? Why? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she cottoned on straight away. Yeah. And his answer was, because I love you. And I said, but why should I marry you? That's why you want to marry me. Mm. But why should I marry you? Mm. And he couldn't tell me. And eventually he said... You could have a house in Kirby. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, good on you. <laughs> I was too young and hadn't occurred to me. I was going out with them. Although past retirement age, the other important role that Dorothy would play during this period was her involvement with National Museums Liverpool, the establishment of the Atlantic Slave Trade Gallery, and the first Slavery Remembrance Day events in 1999, as well as the eventual opening of the International Slavery Museum in 2007. Here's archivist Vicky talking about the documents from this time. Again, um, long-standing relationship with this organisation. There's a letter dated 1993 from a Lord Pitt and he was chair of what was then called the Atlantic Slave Trade Gallery Advisory Committee and he personally invited Dorothy to join and he set out the fact that there would only be three meetings to attend per year but I think Dorothy got more involved mm. in in that. This was, again, another opportunity for her to share her learning and her passion. There's only a few folders of the minutes and the correspondence, and Dorothy's later invited to become part of the Opening Events Committee. She's encouraged to make recommendations and share her views. And... One of the things that comes out of this, um, positive action posts are created for local people in terms of employment across the museum. And I think she also would have had a say in shaping what the opening would have looked like in 1994. Mm. She was involved in writing for progress reports. She would have worked with curators she would have been getting people involved. Mm, and yeah. I think this is a familiar story we're seeing. She yeah. was fantastic at getting people around her involved in these different causes, different organisations. Mm. So 
yeah, she's keeping that going. Yeah. She's keeping that momentum yeah. And like convincing going. people that they've got a stake in this, you know, it's their history. Oh, it's her legacy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I think I've spoken to a few people who said that she was responsible for getting Maya Angelou to come to the opening. Incredible. Um, you know, so you can imagine they've invited her to be part of this group and she's, you know, with all her knowledge, she's probably took over. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, with that library as well. Do you absolutely. know what I mean? She's she's done her homework. <laughs> and then sort of leading on from that, there was... Um, what was called the Liverpool Slavery Remembrance Initiative. And that was a steering group that was set up. And again, Dorothy's instrumental in that. And what's also interesting is around that time, Dorothy is a member of the board of the Liverpool Culture Company. And they're looking to secure this capital of culture Mm. that Liverpool did um, succeed in being awarded in 2008 yeah. but way back in 2001 Dorothy's part of this board so she knows about being patient she knows about working with longer term goals but also seeing how different structures and hierarchies are needed mm-hmm. how there's boards there's committees there's executives and I think that's some of the things that she's taken back to the Granby Residence Association mm-hmm. but also she sees how the museum is set up and how they can kind of achieve different events uh, and goals such as this slavery remembrance initiative yeah yeah but when you mentioned I mean when when you sort of came across that that she was involved um, with that group trying to secure the 2008 bid that bid has completely changed the city I mean now you know in 2023 um it looks you know it's a completely different city absolutely and to think that oh my god she was even on that she was even involved (laughs) in that it's like what you know what what wasn't she involved in just absolutely fantastic what what is a relationship with the museum do you get a sense of that from the correspondence I think they value uh, her input and her opinion and she's very clear and very happy to share that opinion. But again, it's it's getting other people involved. It's it's making sure that there's kind of community representation and she's not afraid to challenge anything that she doesn't agree with. Mm. So, you know, there are minutes, there are letters that look at various issues that's come up and you can see where she's sort of fought her corner, stood her ground. Um, But, you know, she's aligned with like-minded people Mm, as well. Yeah. And so it's how they kind of build on that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But there's one little... uh, I found an envelope and it was note cards for a speech that Dorothy gave. Mm. So on the 23rd of August in 1999, Dorothy spoke and welcomed Bernie and Sharon Grant to Liverpool Mm -hmm. to unveil a plaque on the um, day of the first International Slavery Remembrance Day. Oh, yeah. So it's lovely, it's so lovely that we've got that speech Mm. in Dorothy's own handwriting on those cards that she would have used. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the fact that the project has sort of wound up towards Slavery Remembrance Day as well and that we're going to be involved, you know, the project team's going to be involved in it. It just seems really um, poignant. 
Slavery Remembrance Day has grown to become a significant date on Liverpool's cultural calendar. It's ironic that in a roundabout way, it was the uprisings of black youth that allowed for the redevelopment of the Albert Dock, where the museum would be housed, and the determination of local black educators such as Dorothy, the push for the museum to acknowledge Liverpool's role in the Atlantic slave trade in its galleries. The Albert Dock and International Slavery Museum are two of the most visited sites in Liverpool today, a city that's become a museum in itself, a monument to Great Britain with its fine architecture, much of it funded by the labour of enslaved Africans. The International Slavery Museum opened on the 23rd of August, 2007. It was accompanied by the Roscoe Lecture, named after the abolitionist William Roscoe. The speaker that year was Paul Robeson Jr. In a report by the Liverpool Echo, following Robeson's lecture, he visited the newly opened museum, praising the work of Liverpool in recognising and addressing its significant role in the transatlantic slave trade. At this visit, he met Dorothy Kuya, the woman who, almost 60 years earlier, as a teenager, had handed flowers to his father and posed for pictures. As if coming full circle, Dorothy was offering a welcome gift to his son, but instead of a bunch of flowers, she handed Robeson British Secret Service papers relating to Robeson Senior that she'd obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. This telling tale is a touching example of Dorothy recognising her own past and acknowledging those who'd come before, whilst carving out her own legacy as a black British woman in her mid-70s. On reflecting on Dorothy's extraordinary life, Hazel made some poignant observations. The expectation was that by the time you were 21, you were engaged, married and possibly pregnant with your first child. Mm. and that's what Dorothy lived through even more than me because she was 20 years younger so what she did within the context of the time was absolutely bloody remarkable and the fact that her parents supported her was even more remarkable because they must have been terrified Mm. and she also taught me that equality does not equal equality Mm. Because she said, what you need is to give more to those who need yeah. the biggest yeah. boost. She agreed with communism, but within, but she, she lived within capitalism and she didn't believe in universal benefits apart from child benefit, which she knew was right to be universal, no matter how wealthy the family were that you were married in. But that was also, Dorothy grew up in a time when it was very, that women could own, but it not really without a man saying so. Mm. <laughs> you know, where women could work and could get their own wages, but as soon as they were married, then the married women's tax mm. and national insurance came in, which women still suffer from now if they're mm. of pensionable age, mm. because they're only getting a tiny pension. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe the small pension that my friend who lives in Beaconsfield Road gets, and it's because she paid the single... It's because she paid the married woman stamp. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So you can just see, can't you, why? You know, as you said with your your story of your first proposal, why? Yeah. Why should she get married? Yeah, why? She was very aware 
of how intelligent she was from a young age and that she could mm. do things. You and know, she was told, her parents told her she mm. was intelligent. She was bedridden for a while as a child. So she, she, they got her books. She was part of the library. They mm. organised the stuff that she wanted to read. Because there's no way that Dorothy could have done what she'd done without support. Mm. Yeah. And even if they didn't she like was lucky, it, she was one of the lucky ones. She was adored. Yeah. Chief Angus also had some touching words about Dorothy's legacy as a campaigner. I'm, I'm so proud that you know people like you. You were only growing up when all this were happening. So, for the younger generation of your age, that you 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 appreciate that uh, some people really gave their lives to creates um, atmosphere that that accommodates young people now because in those days it was really difficult. Most most young people some many many years, I would say probably ten years back, um they didn't when when they left the universities they didn't stay in Liverpool. They went, they went to London, there was nothing here in Liverpool for them. But it does look as if things are changing now, yes. Uh, so that that is that is something that needs to be acknowledged, and 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 Dorothy's work was one of one of the obviously made an impact in that. And for, for people like you, obviously uh, recognizing that and bringing it to the fore uh, is something that we really, I do appreciate so much. After Dorothy's passing, the community mourned as it reflected on the astonishing achievements of one of its finest advocates. Here, Paul references Dorothy's library of over 700 books, left along with the archive, that relate to every aspect of the African diasporic experience, but goes on to explain how it was not until she'd gone that he began to appreciate the reach of her impact during her life. I'm so proud, you know, the yeah. recognition Auntie Daughter's actually got for all the hard work mm. and determination and stuff like that. It is because if it wasn't Auntie Dart, those books would maybe not be known or seen again or, mm. you know, um, lived or educating somebody. So yeah. it is, yeah. it's, it, it, she, she'd done a great thing. Definitely. And she's had foresight and she's known because yeah. she's uh, studied trends and changes and stuff and people evolving, you know, into the areas, you know, where they live sort of thing. And a lot of people know what she's done. It was sad when she passed, but me and Tammy, we went through a, a, a diaries, you know, to inform everybody. Mm. And it, there was at least 400 people, you yeah. know, who were yeah. like, sort of like wanted to be, they all couldn't get there. But yeah. there was at least that. And then there was still stuff that we couldn't, there's people from over abroad. The phone didn't stop ringing for about like three and a half weeks. Oh, you yeah. You know, condolences and stuff like that. It was amazing. It was. It yeah. was like, wow. I, I knew Auntie Dot was, you know, connected. But you don't realise till they're gone. And it's yeah. Like, wow. We never celebrate anybody while they're alive, no. do we? No, that's It's always true. when they're gone. And it's like, oh, they done this and they done that yeah. and stuff like that. 
and it is it's it, 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 it is it'll it'll stay with me forever anyway oh definitely yeah. and the yeah. thought about that as well i think you know when it's an older person saying yeah. oh when i was young i did this and, and yeah, when right. you're a young person yourself you don't yeah. really sort of take it on board or you think no, oh you know no, whatever that's type right. of thing yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, like Chief Angus and um, Eric Lynch, all oh, these yeah. names I knew, yeah. you know, that they were the local legends or whatever. The local legends, um, yeah. So when right. Vicky said, oh, Dorothy Cougar's archive, um, mm-hmm. I was thinking, oh, that would be amazing. But mm-hmm. I've just been completely, my head has fallen mm-hmm. off, honestly. Oh, yeah. I just was yeah. not yeah. expecting it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, and as I say, You've got basically black British history from mm-hmm. a black woman's point of view, yes, which yes. is so unusual, yeah. um, you know, so unique. So I, I honestly, I really do think, yeah. um, you know, this, this won't be the end of it. To see us out one final time, I asked our amazing project archivist, Vicky Kieran, the same question I've asked every person who I've spoken to on this journey. So after working so closely with the collection, it feels like we have just lived and breathed this for like 10 years yes. <laughs> and two minutes at the same time. <gasps> um, what do you think Dorothy Cougar's legacy is? Uh, I mean, wow, it's... That's almost too big a question, mm. you know? Um <laughs> Maybe it's the way my mind works. Legacy sounds like a singular thing, one thing. And I don't think there's one legacy for Mm, Dorothy. mm. There's like multiple, you know, in terms of her work in anti-racism campaigning, in education, in training, you know, that constant kind of fight for equality, equality of opportunity um, for women in terms of employment, in education. Again, that community organisation, that bringing people together, that thinking globally, but working locally. Mm. There's, yeah, legacy almost doesn't seem big enough to incorporate what she's done yeah yeah if that makes sense yeah no it does make sense I sort of see this as like a continuation so in a way she's not sort of gone you know or someone that has this kind of impact and leaves that legacy or legacies behind Mm. it continues you know so obviously we've never met her but we've been obsessed with her for, throughout this project, yeah. you know, and feel like, I mean, personally, I feel like learning about her and the sort of context around it has completely changed, you know, my yeah. outlook on things. It's changed what I want to do with my life. It's inspired me to be more like her. If you know oh, what I mean, absolutely. and think, you know, what can I do? What can yeah, I do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I mean, for me, it's sort of different levels. Um, you know, working on this project has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege. It really has, and it sort of informed me um, in a professional way, like mm. my professional practice. So, this is one of the biggest. It is the biggest archive collection I've I've ever worked on and I will be honest and it was quite overwhelming at times Mm -hmm. um but the amount I've got out of it in terms of what I've learned um about 
you know, black British history, about Liverpool, but also in a reflective way about about myself. You know, I can achieve this, I can do this. And then to feel, like, personally inspired as mm. well. Mm. Um, you know, this is a woman who had what seemed like boundless energy and creativity and she worked full-time and she had projects and she volunteered and she was with organisations and it... It makes me want to do that yeah. too, the yeah. same. It makes me want to do more. It, yeah. it makes me feel lazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I w- yeah. You know, it does, it does. Yeah, um, it does. But I also think how I'm feeling is how others around me are feeling, like the participants. I can see they they get it. They, they get so much out of it. Mm, yeah. um, and again, I think as a group of people, we're all going to just take so much forward I'm not saying we're we're all going to be you know activists but mm, it's definitely mm. making people think about just getting involved more and doing more with their time or I don't know reading more yeah. you know the the books that she had that education you know get going back to study maybe in a formal way mm, or mm. yeah yeah There's, just giving people the inspiration and the courage isn't it to um, you know, going yeah. back to that political education as well, I think her archive and her life and story will be one of those political, yeah. you know, will be part of that political education for other people in the future. Yeah. And I hope, you know, you know, that's kind of what comes out of it. Um, not just kind of, you know, stale papers written about it, but that it's used mm. to carry on that activity. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, which I, I really think it will, you know. It's, it's yeah. if you like, it's like a living, breathing thing, yeah. the archive now. Mm. You know, we've we've helped bring it to life a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost a bit of a, a pay it forward. It's like, here it is, come and use it, come and access it, come and learn from it. Yeah, um, yeah. It's not just like you say about writing papers. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. It's well, almost like a manual, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> but Father Nick um, actually said something that I thought was a, a nice compliment, actually, with us saying that we feel lazy, like sort of working with it. And he was saying that, you know, there are um, different people involved in a struggle mm-hmm. and there are those people that kind of are the actives on the fr- activists mm-hmm. on the front line. Um, but he was saying what we were kind of doing was we were like either undertakers, he said, or midwives. Ah. So we were basically, you know, sort of go back to the past and sort out, you know, what what should be brought along to the future, ah. sort of passing it on, yeah. you know, to yeah. the... And I thought, well, that makes me feel like I've done something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. we're um, history midwives. That's it. <laughs> so from history detectives to history midwives. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to the Dorothy Kuya podcast. First and foremost, endless thanks to Paul and Tammy for releasing Dorothy's archive and for their support. To Writing on the Wall for this amazing opportunity and National Museums Liverpool for commissioning the project. Thank you to Vicky Karen, archivist extraordinaire, Datius Tego Archives Assistant and the most wonderful group of project participants that we could have asked for. Special shout out to Aisha, Rebecca, Duncan, Nazra, 
Janet, Jeanette, Olivia, Ketchy and Lucy. A very special thank you to our guests for this week, Paul, Chief Angus, Hazel Tilly and Professor Mark Christian, whose in-depth book on the Black Liverpool experience, Transatlantic Liverpool, is now available to buy online. A special shout out to those who have come before and for the work of Liverpool Black historians such as Mark Christian, Stephen Small, Ray Costello and the late Dave Clay, whose work has been integral to this podcast and my own understanding of the Liverpool Black experience. This podcast was written, researched and narrated by me, Jenea Pickett. Edited by the wonderful Rory Ballantyne. Thank you, Rory. We hope you've enjoyed this short podcast series and that you share this story far and wide. But most importantly, we hope that you've been as inspired as we have by this tale of black working class empowerment and that the next time you witness social injustice, you ask yourself, what would Dorothy Kuyu do?